are you happy? They're asking if you have an abiding sense of joy. Okay, we kind of mix those two words up. But in reality, they're speaking of some very true and similar things. Do you have an abiding sense of happiness when you don't get what you want? When things don't go your way? When life doesn't come to fruition the way you want it to? Are you happy? Or is your happiness dependent upon things going the way you want it to? Getting your way, having the job that you want, your family working out the way you want it to work out? Are you happy? I'm not asking if you laugh a lot. Robin Williams, the comedian, laughed a lot and he brought laughter to many other people. But he was not happy. He was very, very sad. I don't want to shame anybody who deals with sadness or depression. Those are realities that many people walk with and many people deal with. And fortunately, there is grace for you this morning. And for you who battle that in your life, either consistently or in seasons of your life, maybe it goes with the physical seasons, uh, there is a promise for you, as there is for others, that there is measures of deliverance you can experience in this life. But just like other people who deal with body ailments in this life, back pain, knee pain, whatever it may be that consistently lingers with them the rest of their life. The restored body promises to those with physical pain a future with no physical pain. The same truth is there for you who deals with spiritual sadness, or who deals with what people used to call melancholy or depression. If you have dealt with that, if you battle with that, there's a promise that restored body, that the restoration of all things, when that comes, you will have eternal happiness every moment of every single day. And that's a good news. It's for those, I'm so thankful for my depressed brothers and sisters that their, their future that awaits them forever and ever is one of bliss. It's not of sorrow. It's one of happiness, true happiness. So thankful for that. Jim Carrey has experienced in this life uh, a lot of things. You may know him from a number of films that he has done. But he said this a few years back. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Uh, inside every single human being, there is an inner life, and it's filled with longings that never go away, desires that are there. Longings can be leading. Um, they're continually, time in, time out, directed on the things of this earth, and the things of this earth simply cannot satisfy. They can distract people for a season, but after the season of distraction, reality begins to set in again. This isn't it. This, I thought, was it, but it's not. Longings bounce from one way and another, and they never find a full and complete resting place. But desire cannot be buried. It will never die. You just can't bury it and push it away. The person who seeks to kill desire is desirous of killing desire. That's the irony of it. So longings in a human is a part of what it means to be human. Desire, longings, greater purpose, a bigger story to live in, a mission bigger than me. It's a common theme across all cultures. An inner sense of guilt that I want to drive away. Forgiveness, approval. These words aren't just words to throw out. It's a part of what it means to live in this skin. 
all across the globe, approval, desire, nagging guilt, I don't measure up, I need approval or acceptance. C.S. Lewis said this, I find in myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That these longings that we're experiencing that shift from one thing to another testify to the reality that we're created as eternal beings. There's something beyond this earth that I was made for, made to live for. And Jesus is telling us today, he's going to tell us at this festival, I can do this for you. I can satisfy your longings, that ache that's inside of you, that never seems to go away. Even when your life is going the way you want it to go, and it just stays, that gut feeling that's there, okay, I can do something about that. What external things promise to give you, they can't give you, but I can. And Jesus is going to say that I satisfy the soul. He's going to say to us, in as much as I will never get old, I won't get boring, I will satisfy you now, tomorrow, the next day, and the next day, and throughout all eternity, and you'll never get tired of me. I'm the answer for wandering hearts. So John 7 is all about this feast of booths. Feast of Booths, and it breaks down really nicely, and I want you to see the outline beforehand, and then we are going to skip some verses here, but I want you to get, want you to get the whole picture of this chapter before we get going, and you'll kind of understand as we're moving through there why we need to kind of move through some of these sections. Challenge you to read this when you go home, when you get an opportunity, but we're going to get the point of the chapter here today. So in verse 1 through 13, we have Jesus and uh, the questions that are all around the pre, pre-feast, so the pre festival section. Verse 1 through 13 deal with the pre-festival sec- section. So like uh, before he goes to the, to the feast. Verses 14 through 36 in the chapter. Look at verse 14 in chapter 7 and you can see this real clearly. It says this, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. So verse 14 down through verse 36 deal with the middle of this eight-day feast. The middle of the feast. And then, starting in verse 37, the last section, 37 to 52, deals with the last day of the feast. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Okay? So there's the general structure of the chapter. There's pre-feast, there's middle feast, and then there is the last day of the feast. So, everybody got that? I hope so. So we're going to start with the pre-feast. What's going on? In verses 1 through 13, let's just read it. We are not actually going to read the whole chapter today, but we are going to read these first 13 verses. After this, Jesus went about to Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. And he and his brothers, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify 
about it that its works are evil. Now, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come. After saying these things, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So in verse 1, we get the words, after this, after this, Jesus went to Galilee. Now, this is interesting because the after this statement is a seven-month gap. There is seven months between the Passover that happens in John chapter 6 and the Feast of Booths that happens in the fall in chapter 7. So within those seven months, you have Jesus doing a myriad of things. He's fulfilling a law on our behalf. He's going about with his disciples. He's teaching. We don't know all the things that he's doing in that seven months, but just for the sake of chronology here, we're we're dealing with a seven-month gap from chapter 6 to chapter 7. And sometimes we just simply forget that. I just thought it was an interesting interesting point. In verse 2, we're introduced to this festival or feast of booths, and I think it's important for us to know a few things about this feast. Now, the feasts in Jewish life were given by God to to happen throughout the year for specific meanings and purpose in the way that the people were to relate to God. So memories that they needed to remember, the Passover, remembering that God had brought them out of Egypt, the sacrificial lamb and the blood across the doorpost. The different different days that were established and festivals that were established by God were well-remembered, well-known among the Jewish people. The Feast of Booths was established in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 42 and 43, says this, Dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. So once a year, for eight days, God's people would build huts, they would build little tents, booths, they would move their belongings or move their things that are inside of their homes, outside of their homes, and they would remember that they were once desert dwellers who had no home, who had been delivered, but they had to live in temporary dwellings. And this feast was established, this party of joy was established to remember that God had brought them through that, that God sustained his people through the time of of living in the desert for 40 years, that their, their clothes didn't wear out, their bellies didn't go empty, they didn't die in the desert, they were provided for, their sandals didn't wear out, God provided, even though they had to live in temporary dwellings. And so they would do this every year. There would be daily sacrifices each of these eight days. There would be sacrifices given. And then there would also be feasts within the feast. So there would be daily feastings and rituals that would happen based on what day the festival was in. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, six, seven, or eight. They would pray for rain for their crops. They believed that this would be the fixed moment when God would answer their prayers for the next year of when all the water would come in. So they would also bring water from the pool of Shalom, and they would do cleansing ceremonies as well within the Feast of Booze. They would sing, they would dance, they would enjoy one another and the Lord. This was the Festival of Booths. It was a festival of joy. And so externally, they're doing this, they're practicing this, they're doing what they're supposed to do. And here the brothers are saying, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, you should go and begin to bring this stuff public. Go to Jerusalem, go to this well-known feast and teach there. It's sad that his brothers didn't even believe what he was saying. 
They got to grow up with him. They got to see him day in and day out. And they were still, at this point, blinded to the truth of who Jesus was. And so they're considering the claims that their brother's making. They're saying, Jesus, if you really believe this about yourself, why keep it private? Go public with this. Go down to Jerusalem, and you say it there. And Jesus says to them, you know what? It's not my time yet. It's not my time to go up yet. And it is fascinating. Some people actually claim that Jesus is lying here because in verse 8, he says, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after this saying, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he went up, not publicly, but in private. And so Jesus has had accusations, and you can just Google, did Jesus lie in John chapter 7? Articles abounding. But here's the deal. This is the point. That there are feasts within feasts in John chapter 7. This festival wasn't just one feast and done. There were many sub-feasts within this feast. And so my best understanding of this is Jesus saying, my father doesn't want me to go to this first one. He's not telling them that he's going to come, but he's saying, I'm waiting on my father's timing and leading to go to this feast, and I'm not going right now. You go. So he responds to his brothers, you go, and he stays back. He doesn't, he doesn't yet go. But what we find out, before Jesus goes, we find out in the gathering, at this feast, there's already rumblings about Jesus. Is he going to show up? Is he going to come? When he gets here, is he going to talk? To us, Is he going to teach? There was muttering that was happening. God's people have always been really good about muttering. They're just muttering and talking and whining and complaining even. Here, just muttering. It says specifically in verse 12, much muttering about the people. Some said he's a good man. And others said he's leading people astray. So, there, the anticipation at the festival, this particular festival, was rising because they were wondering, is this Jesus going to come? This isn't just a normal festival for the Jews. This Jesus has caused a stir. He's healed the sick. He's preached with authority. We've heard about him. He's caused some problems. He's sent people away angry, and he's okay with that. Is he going to come? What do you think? Is he going to come? Jesus. Yeah, you've heard about him. You think he's going to show up to this festival? Is he going to teach us? Is he going to, are they going to arrest him? So there's a lot of, I didn't mean to hit that. There's a lot of muttering happening. Anticipation is high. And then in verse 14, Jesus shows up at the temple. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? So middle of the feast, the mutterings, the questions that the people had, they're answered. Jesus does, in fact, show up. He goes up at his appointed time 
and begins to speak. And the Jews, instead of wanting to kill him, because we already learned that in Judea there was some, already some hostility building, but instead of this hostility being the first thing that he encountered, the first thing Jesus encountered as he begins to teach is in verse 15, and instead of wanting to kill him, they start marveling at his authority. The Jews therefore marveled. This is radically different than the, what we expected to happen if Jesus was to show up. That immediately he would either be arrested or killed, stoned, but we would think that he's going to step into this hostile environment. He teaches in such a way that they begin to marvel. And then in verse 16 he says, My teaching, the reason I'm teaching with authority here, is because my teaching is from God the Father. And in verse 17 he, he says out to them, If you want to know God's will... If you, if you want to know God's will, then you will know that what I say is true. If your desire is to know God's will, you will understand, you will know that what I'm saying is true. And here's one more testimony that what I'm saying is true. I'm in this not for my glory, but for God's glory. This, this truth that we see in verse 18 is the fundamental difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. Between true godliness and false godliness. Between true humility and, true, and, and false humility. You see, Jesus warned that there's a way to pray and there's a way to do righteous acts that brings yourself gr glory. And when you get the pat on your back from your peer, you have received your reward and it's not from God. There's a way to be holy that has nothing to do with holiness. And there's a way to be righteous that has nothing to do with righteousness. And there's a way to do ministry that has nothing to do with ministry. And it has to do with this. Is it about God's glory or my own? And the Pharisees love to stand on the corner, the street corners, and pray large prayers. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Or in the temple with a sinner standing right by. We read this from Luke 18 last week or a couple weeks ago. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, loudly enough that other men and women can hear. I thank you I'm not like them, as they stand feeling condemned and thinking, oh, I wish I was like them. It's apparently they're right with God, not realizing that nothing like that gets you right with God. And Jesus is saying, here, I'm, I'm here, and I'm pointing attention to my heavenly Father. Okay, I'm, I'm, not, I'm here for his glory. I'm living for his will. And I'm deferring even my own will, aligning my will up with my heavenly father's will each moment, each day, each week, each month for 33 years. He is here to do the will of the father. And he tells him, if it was your will to do God's will, you would see that. You would recognize that. And so even though they're marveling, Jesus does what Jesus does, he gives them an inflammatory statement. Not vulgar, not sinful, but inflammatory. And they inflame with anger. The conversation starts with marveling, and it ends with him wanting to be arrested, them wanting him to be arrested. There's a change that happens in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now, wait a second, Jesus. They're not seeking to kill you right now. Maybe they were, but you just preached some bold truth with authority, and they're now marveling. They're not raging. They're even 
keeping the law of Moses right now. It's really odd. They're keeping the law of Moses. They're going to, they're at the feast doing what they're supposed to do. And Jesus is saying, you're not keeping the law. They could have easily answered back, uh, yes, we are. That's why we're at the feast. And Jesus is saying, Moses has given you the law and no one keeps it. So he gives this rhetoric that comes to them as they're, they're thinking, I'm doing the right thing. And again, time and time again, Jesus is doing this. It's, it's the clean out the ears statement. Did I hear him say what I think I heard him say? We're at the feast, Jesus. What do you mean I'm not keeping the law? And we're marveling at you, Jesus. We're not wanting to kill you. Well, Jesus gives the statement, and they marvel no longer. In verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Now, that's a remarkable transition. Friends, I hope this has been like this for you as we've walked through this gospel. Jesus is unique. I mean, he really is special. He's different than us. He's not intentionally rude like some of you. Like me at times. He's not, he's not just going out looking to pick fights. This, this is holy. And this is perfect behavior. And as we look at Jesus chapter by chapter, I think if we can kind of sympathize with some of these people in the book and say, I wouldn't like this. I'm at the feast. I'm trying my best. Why? Get off my back. Don't tell me I'm not following Moses. I'm at the feast. You must have a demon. What do you want me to do? Leave the feast and not do this? Jesus clarifies in verse 22 and 24, and you can read this and study this out if you want on your, by yourself, but basically what Jesus says to them is, you're hypocritical in your adherence to the law. You say that you keep the law, but you don't actually. You have caveats to the law that suits your preferences, and you do that all the time. You don't actually keep it. You keep what you want, and you don't keep what you don't want. You're hypocritical. That's how you're not keeping the law. You may be at the feast, but when next week rolls around, you're being hypocritical in your adherence of this law. Well, they don't like it. And the questions begin to come from the crowd. In verse 25 through 36, we get this reaction. And Jesus ends up telling the crowd in verse 28 that they don't even know God. Jewish people, you don't know God. How are they going to react at statements like that? In verse 28, look at it, you can read it with me. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you don't know. In chapter 8, we're going to see here in a couple weeks where he picks a fight, a holy fight with a group of people who turn to him and believe in him, and he says, No, you don't. Your father is the devil. What is he doing? Like, what is Jesus doing? Is he trying to simply get people to hate him? Or is he trying and is he accomplishing their healing? 
Is he doing something for them, something for their good? Because at this point, the people in Jerusalem at this feast, they're not seeing this as being for their good at all. They're just inflamed by it. And so some want to arrest Jesus in verse 30. And then some, even as some want to arrest and some are saying that he has a demon, we get some signs of life here and to, to kind of see what Jesus is doing. Some actually believe in him because they see the signs. Verse 30, some were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Fascinating, by the way. Yet many people believed in him and said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this? So some people were believing. Some wanted him arrested. Verse 30 appeals to God's sovereignty. No one could arrest him because people are subject to God's plan. God is not subject to people's plan. And it was not yet Jesus' time. So even though they had a desire to arrest him, God's like, "Uh uh-uh. It's not happening. And in verse 33, Jesus says as much, basically saying, I'm not going to be arrested now. I'm going to be here a little bit longer. In fact, look at it. Verse 33, it says, Jesus then said, I will be with you, starting in verse 32, how about? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. There they are muttering again. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you'll not find me where I, where I am. You cannot come. So Jesus, upon seeing a people sent to arrest him, says, not yet. I'm going to be here a little bit longer. And they didn't arrest him. And so Jesus is masterful and intentional at causing in the middle of this festival an intentional stir. He's at this feast and it's like he's picking up this rock and he's exposing this crowd to something. We don't necessarily know what it is yet, but he's doing some exposés on this group of people. What's his intention? What's his desire? Just to ruffle a few feathers and run off? Or is he there for souls? Jesus is setting the table in the middle of this feast for the last day of the feast. He's setting the table. They're there to feast. He is there setting the table for what he's going to teach the last day of the feast. And it seems like everyone at this particular celebration had an opinion about Jesus. I can imagine the dialogue back and forth was quite heated. He's a good man. No, he's not a good man. Well, I'm starting to believe in him. You shouldn't. The leaders don't. They want to arrest him. Back and forth. The ping pong conversation goes. Jesus did this at the right time. To get people ready to hear what he would say on the last day. And on the last day, Jesus stood up loudly and he shouted loudly. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So he stands and he says this to the group of people. But to more clearly understand the significance of his word, his words, I want to go back and then we're going to come. So we're. He says at the final day, come to me, believe in me, your thirst will be satisfied, your heart will be new, and out of the heart will flow rivers of living water. But we need to do a little background work. So Jesus, he's addressing a highly religious crowd, a group of Jews, 
who are going through the routines year in, year out. The external performance life is the one they lived. And they just had to keep going to festivals and they had to keep sacrificing for sins and they just had to keep going through the motions year in and year out and it was never enough. There was never enough blood spilled to get rid of the inner guilt. And so I want to look at a few things in the Old Testament to kind of get us ready to hear the significance of Jesus' words in John chapter 7. That last day, what did it mean? Okay, a few comments on water in the Old Testament. A few comments on water in the Old Testament. So in Genesis, God judges the earth with what? God judges the earth with water. John, or Genesis chapter 6. So God judges the earth with water. The floods come, the rains come, the earth splits open, water comes out, and the earth is judged and destroyed. But God brought Noah safely through the waters in the water of judgment. In Exodus, God brought people, his people, through what to escape Egypt? Brought people through water to escape from Egypt. And then God defeated, not just delivered, but defeated the Egyptian armies with what? With water. Micah, good job. I saw that. Way to go. With water. In Joshua, Israel walks through what to get into the promised land? Water. Walks through the Jordan River. There's water. This is interesting. Numbers chapter 20, God provides water out of what to quench the thirst of complaining people? Moses gets in trouble because he doesn't hit it enough. It's a rock. Rock splits open. The rock. Jesus. Okay? Splits open. Water comes out to a parched people. Israel had, vic- had a history of water. God's dealing with water. And then in Jeremiah... A major prophet in the Bible, there is language that the people should have been familiar with. And I want to look at three passages in particular in the book of Jeremiah. Because I want to look at the sin of God's people and then bring that into the present day reality of John 7. And then into our present day reality right here. And in Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13, we get an interesting passage that... uh, helps us understand this whole living waters thing, like what Jesus is appealing to, and what he's saying that he is. Okay? So we need to connect the dots here. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. Now, this is the sins that we're talking about here in Jeremiah that led to the Babylonian captivity and the exile of God's people for 70 years into Babylon. Okay? So God is addressing the Jewish people and saying to those in Jerusalem, this is why you're going to be exiled. This is what the book of Jeremiah is about. They end up getting exiled in here. And and God is talking to them and telling them what, what their sins are, what they've done wrong. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the first thing they did was they had forsaken God. They had forsaken God, the fountain of living waters. The second thing they did was they made for themselves cisterns, built for themselves cisterns that can hold no water. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, essentially we're talking about, not, we're not talking about cisterns actually. Okay? We're not talking about actual things that hold water. We're talking about a group of people who looked at God and said to him, 
I don't believe you. I don't think you can satisfy me. God, you are not my answer. I don't believe you have what I need. Instead, I'm going to forsake the fountain of living waters, and I'm going to go make basins or cisterns for myself, and I'm going to get satisfaction my own way. I think, and we as a people, the Jewish people, believe that we can do better for ourselves than you can do for us. So they forsake God, and they think, you know what, we've got a better plan for us. And I know how to satisfy my own soul. I know how to fill the void in my life. They tried to find purpose, satisfaction, life, joy, their own way, and they rejected God. And they built for themselves cisterns that just don't hold any water. And this is the story of the human existence. Running from one thing to another, being distracted enough for a season of life to move to the next distraction to the deepest longings in our soul. So they had two great evils amongst other sins. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the problem and the plot even thickens because Jeremiah is going to speak to, with the voice of the Lord, the ultimate problem within Israel. They were doing that, forsaking God and making cisterns for themselves because they had a heart problem. They were trusting in their own heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? A verse that could be read to every single teenage boy and girl in the world. And be like, yeah, yeah, that's about right. Is there emotions in all of that rage? But the human heart, according to the Bible, in John 7, or Jeremiah 17 is deceitful above all things. Now, there are a lot of things in this world, and there's a lot of deceit in this world, but Jeremiah spoke to God's people and said, above everything else that's deceitful, above, above all the bad things and bad people in this world, here's what's more deceitful. Your heart. Above everything else. This, inside of here. Deceitful. Desperately sick. Who can understand it. The fundamental problem of God's people in the Old Testament is that they were trying to do everything external. And see, there's this promise and this longing in the Old Testament that something new is coming. They were going through the motions, but they were abandoning God to do the things their own way. And they were doing that because they were doing what their heart wanted them to do. In fact, the worst thing you can possibly say to a non-believer is follow your own, trust your own dreams, trust your own plans. What do you really want to do? What will make you happy? It's the most dangerous thing you can possibly say. But Jeremiah 31 promises a solution. A solution's coming. In Jeremiah 31, it says this, verse 31 to 33. And I'm going to read this. I'm, I still hear pages turning, try to catch up, but for the sake of time, I do want to get into this. 31 to 33 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one, continuing on, teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Here's the promise. And we see this in Ezekiel chapter 31, I believe, as well. Or 36, as well. Here's the promise. Even though the heart is deceitfully wicked, heart transplants are coming. Even though you're trying to do this externally, I'm going to do something internally inside of you. There's something new. There's something better. I'm going to do something in you, inside, where there's going to be inside of you new desire or longings. The law will actually be written there where you will want not to hew out cisterns for yourselves, but you will want to drink from the living waters again. You won't look to the God of the universe and say, you're not enough for me. You'll identify it's actually the things of the earth here that can't hold water. They're broken. God isn't. And so the promise is that from the prophet to the people is that God's going to do something about this problem. You can't fix yourself. You can't do this. But I'm going to do something. It's coming. Heart transplants are coming now back to the last day of the feast. The last day of the feast, 37 and 38. On the last day, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believe in, believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart will flow these rivers. Their heart transplant was in front of them. This is what God promised the question is, are you thirsty? Do you have longings that this feast, the feast of booths, can't satisfy? Jesus is promising to do internally what the festivals were trying to do and the law was trying to do externally. Jesus is the true provision in the wilderness. It's not about us tabernacling for God and building booths for God, and working our hands to build and make ourselves right with God. It's about the Word of God becoming flesh and dwelling, Greek, tabernacling with us. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, the great Christmas verse, the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And so Jesus is here, the fulfillment of all of this, the fulfillment of festivals, the fulfillment of the promises in Jeremiah, God tabernacling with man. And so we don't trust God, we don't trust the God who made a booth among us. The problem is with people, even to this day, is that we don't trust the God who made a booth among us. We demand to build our twig buildings to him and say, be impressed, God. We use our hands and we work and we sweat and we demand that we tabernacle for God, that we build for Him. And it's Jesus who came and dwelt for us. And Jesus promises that the living water will flow from the hearts of those who believe in Him. The new heart is here. 
New desires are here. New life. People born again. How will Jesus do this? Verse 39 tells us. Now he said this about the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John the Baptist, or the baptizer, has a really great... I mean, he always references to Jesus with a specific name. John the baptizer does. It is Jesus... The baptizer, not of the Holy Spirit. Uh, interesting thing, baptism of the Holy Spirit is nowhere in the Bible. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is. That's the wording of the Bible. So just interesting side note there. Jesus is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist says. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And the way we receive living waters inside of our heart, inside of us, the way we are made new is through the work of the Holy Spirit. The baptizer of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, it sends the Holy Spirit and changes us from the inside out. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to be consumed with Jesus and to live from the, for the glory of God, not outside in, but inside out. To actually love Jesus, not just work for Him. For you to feel things for God. For you to actually want to obey Him. Even when you screw up. Even when you mess up, which we do every day. We want to obey. That's the Holy Spirit inside of you. John chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. It says, the Holy Spirit comes, I will send Him to you. When He comes, He will glorify me. And He will take what is mine and deliver it to you. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. And so when Jesus is being glorified, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is at work. Where Jesus is on display and people are saying, look to him, look to him, love him, he satisfies, that's the Holy Spirit working. If you ever find yourself and you're all about the Holy Spirit or in a group of people or a church, all about Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, and Jesus is relegated to a small section of your time together or a small section of your Christian life, it's not the Holy Spirit at work. Because the Holy Spirit leads us to glorify the Son, Jesus Christ, and be inflamed with passion for Him. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So right now, the Holy Spirit, hopefully, in you, is driving you to look to Jesus and to be satisfied. The answer for the non-believing Jews was to look to Jesus and be satisfied. And Colossians tells us, as we receive Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in Him. And so for us, as we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, you, me, as the living waters who satisfies our longings and our soul, we walk in Him today. And we look to Him again today and the Holy Spirit points us back there to be satisfied again. If we're going to be satisfied for all eternity with Him, then He is big enough to satisfy us even right now. To make our heart beat a little bit a little bit and our cheeks blush a little bit and our eyes water up a little bit and if it doesn't here's how good Jesus is if you are cold and distant still even at, about hearing about Jesus the living waters here's how great he is you don't have to feel anything right now to be secure in him if you are in him and you are the one who's dealing with not feeling satisfied he's still the fount of living waters for you 
And whether that fount bursts out of you right now, tomorrow, or whether the sorrow, the clouds of your depression breaks 10 months from now, five years from now, or not until the day you wake up to see him, that fountain of living waters is there and it will burst forth now or forevermore. And so we have a response. Non-believer, you have longings inside of you that will never go away. Desire that's there, you can't bury it. It will be there. Your heart is deceitfully wicked. You can't trust yourself, whether you think you can or not. A part of the deception is the belief that you can trust your heart. Evil hearts think they're good. But we're called this morning to hear Jesus at the end of the festival say, Drink of me. Don't hew out cisterns for yourself. You can't do for you what I can do for you. And believer... For us, have we tripped? Have we fallen? Are we trusting in broken cisterns this morning? God, if my life was like this, I would be satisfied. The answer isn't for your life to be like this or not like this. The answer for you this morning is that classic age-old Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus. Come to him again this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness to us. I thank you, Jesus, that you came to that festival and you stood up. And as they thought about the rain and the water from the pools of Shalom, and as they remember back to this problem of trying to get satisfaction and answers from other places, Jesus, here you are saying, Hey, I'm the answer. I'm it. I'm right here. Drink of me. Would you enjoy me? Are you soul tired? Soul tired this morning? Holy Spirit, help us to drink of Jesus. Help us to think about the words we are about to sing. And I ask that that living water that is inside of us that it would burst out. That our mind would ascend to the hill of the Lord and look and see Jesus. That our heart would be moved by your love for us. And if there's a non-believer here this morning, I ask for heart transplants. I pray that you would take out the heart of flesh, heart of stone, and you'd put in a heart of flesh. And that they would repent of their sins, that they would agree that their heart is deceitfully wicked, and they would trust in you to satisfy their soul. They would repent of their sins, and they would trust in the work of Christ and Christ alone this morning. It's going to be our joy to sing to you. Living waters, we trust you to satisfy. It's in your name we pray.